0: If you've been a fan of unknowing, you know that embodiment, that a return, a remembrance to our membership in material relationality is a theme that I talk about a lot on this show. And I'm not talking about it in a wellness Buddha beads in Tulum Instagram kind of way. The reason it's such an important descent return, remembrance, is because it's the recovery of our agency. We cannot be agents of change. We cannot create alternatives to the domination paradigm if we are not in our bodies, if we are not in relationship. And relationship animates our passion, our drive, our desire to protect bodies and bodiliness as having an inherent right To live, breathe, to thrive. And that shared reciprocity of being, of becoming, is what drives a communal paradigm, which in turn is what fosters imagination and creativity. The capacity to not just tolerate disruption, but to move within it. To see the cracks and the crevices as the site of emergence, of possibility. That is what unknowing is all about. Last week on Unknowing Podcast, I discussed with Dr. Karen Jo Torgeson the first several centuries of the movement that became Christianity, and in particular, how the Greco-Roman dominant patriarchal philosophies co-opted this movement until the two became rather inextricable, until patriarchy and Christianity became synonymous, even though that had nothing to do with the Galilean mystic and revolutionary who began the whole movement. On Composting Christianity this season of the podcast, we're exploring how Christianity as empire became the foundations of the United States government and how it has led to the political and ecological climate we now find ourselves in. So I wanted to dig into the context a bit more, the landscape, the environment, the root system of this movement. To try to understand how re-rooting and re-wilding the gospel stories could help us have a more communal and ecological approach to our lives, this moment, how we might compost what has been to make room for what could be. And as I considered the theme of this season, I knew immediately that I wanted Sophie Strand to be part of these conversations Sophie is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Sophie describes herself as a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. I have been a fan of Sophie Strand's work for quite some time. I definitely have an eco-crush on her. You're about to find out why, and I bet you're going to feel the same way. One of the things I'm most excited about um, sharing with you in this conversation is the beginnings of weaving in what is being described by some eco-philosophers as an erotic ecology, an approach to ecology that's oriented around relationality and reciprocity. And this has been hugely formative in my own thinking, or the way that I aspire to live, which is more communally, ecologically, and creatively oriented. Sophie's new book, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, comes out on Tuesday, November 29th, and her book, which we discuss a little bit in our conversation, The Madonna Secret, her novel about rewilding the story of Mary Magdalene within the ecology and complex spiritual culture of the Second Period, Judea and Galilee, comes out next year. There are links in the show notes below to both of those works if you're interested. And I'm sure you will be, especially after you listen to this incredible conversation on Season 3 of Unknowing Podcast, Episode 3, Composting Christianity with Sophie Strand. So, Sophie, we're focusing this season of unknowing on the idea of unknowing religious empire— And I think I speak for many listeners when I say that many of us grew up with a map of the religious empire as reality. In other words, we had an understanding specifically of Christianity in this country that is more aligned with empire than the wild Galilean man who started this whole movement to begin with. And, you know, in this moment, I think we're all kind of recognizing that Christianity as empire and the foundations of this country have become really colluded. So, I'm really excited to unravel what of the movement was appropriated by Empire and what, if any, of it is still helpful for us to reclaim and rediscover. So thank you for being here and welcome to Unknowing.
1: Well, I'm so happy to be speaking with someone who's also interested in these questions. So thank you
0: for including me. Well, Sophie, normally I like to begin these conversations by asking guests about the maps that they're handed or they were handed growing up. But I wanna dive into that in a little bit. First, I wanna ask you, Sophie, about your perspective on myths as ecological maps.
1: So I think for most of human history, you know, for 95% of human history, um, myths were oral and they were the way that knowledge was transmitted. You know, when you don't have written culture, the only way to keep knowledge alive is you can't store it in a book. You can't offload it into an object. It stays alive through relationships and through constant updating and retelling. So you'd have to like, keep stories moving and retelling them every week in order to keep information alive. And so myth was a highly durable way of passing along information about how to best live in the land you know, when to harvest, how not to over-harvest, how to respect the animals, um, what places to go to perform certain rituals and sacred rites so that the seasons would continue to cycle through. I think for me that myth is highly contextual. It's always responding to a specific ecology. You know, it becomes, when you pour a myth, oftentimes use fungi as metaphor. And, you know, fungi, which are the mycelial branching thread-like systems that connect forests below ground, They don't have a body plan. When you pour them into an ecosystem, they become a map of relationships. And I think myths function in the same way, which is they map the relationships between humans, non-humans, plants, fungi, geological formations, weather patterns in a specific place. And they show all of those beings how to interact with each other in a sustainable way, how to co-create an actually resilient landscape. For me, what's problematic about written culture is it pretends like you can uproot a myth from its web of relations, its context, and then transplant it into a different language in a different place. You know, when you write something down on the page, it looks like an object that you can pick up and take somewhere else. So it really uproots knowledge for extra textual kinship. And then when you plant it somewhere else, it doesn't thrive. Or it can be easily perverted. And so I think that it's really important to get back in touch with myth as a topology of differences. That the wisdom of one place will not easily be transplanted to another place. I was just talking with Kamea Chain of Green Dreamer, and she was talking to me about thinking how knowledge can't be generalized, but it can be syndicated, that you can like learn from the general themes of another being's myth, another place's stories, but then you have to really freshly adapt it to the map of relationships where
0: you're planted. And that was gonna be one of my questions then was, you know, what is the proper relationship that we can develop to myths that is a more rooted approach or respectful, relational, rooted approach? And I know that you're teaching a class right now called Myth and Mycelium, Rerooting and Rewilding the Gospels. And I wanna ask you about what prompted you to do this. What, what what was it in you that was like, okay, I need I really want to take on this project. And maybe then we can kind of get into your own map of what has brought you to this point as a way to contextualize what drew you to want to reroute the story of Christianity.
1: Well, I think the answer go- probably goes all the way back to my childhood. It's not what I would have ordered off the menu. Who wants to get involved with Jesus? You know, white, white Jesus has been pretty pretty destructive. And to ally yourself with, with um, that whole situation is to invite a lot of mess and stink into your life. I was raised by parents who were, they studied religion and spirituality. And they were really interested in looking at the pagan and the suppressed root systems of the other practices that have been, oppressed, reappropriated, co-opted by Christianity, and they created interfaith communities. And I was raised in a compost heap of, you know, rabbis, theologians, Theravadan Buddhist monks. You know, my dad was an ex-Buddhist monk. So I was raised within a lot of different spiritual perspectives that were all analyzed and critiqued, but also deeply respected, which was really important. Mm. I was always fascinated, and, and there's no explanation for this. For some reason, And I was not raised by Christian parents, and we did not go to church. In fact, I asked to go to church at a certain point. And they were like, okay, I hated it. But, you know, my dad was an ex-Buddhist monk working with Sohugakai Buddhism. My mom had been raised by pretty much like a pagan English mother who had no religion except for growing roses. And so, um, and and then half of my family are Israeli Jews. So I had this, you know, very interesting compost heap that... In the midst of that, I became fascinated with the Jesus story, but not as this salvific miracle story, but as being a Shakespearean tragedy. Like, Mm. it seemed to me to be deeply tragic, and the way that we were fetishizing his death was obscuring the actual complexity of his teachings, and that he had become like a death cult when he had been a person who seemed to be radically, centrally, ecologically alive, and that seemed very tragic to me. And I was fascinated with that as I grew up. I have a genetic illness that's incurable, but it didn't kick in, and we didn't know I had it until I was visiting family in Israel, and it kicked in at 16, just like overnight, and I became pretty much life-threateningly ill. And so there's some strange magic whereby falling so ill in Jerusalem having had this upbringing of all of these different stories melting and melding inappropriately in the compost heap, stitched me into needing to rehabilitate that story. And, you know, I I studied with Bruce Chilton at the Jesus seminar at Bard college. I read deeply and intensely. I listened to everybody. I, I wrote, you know, my heroes and my scholars and spent a long time just thinking about how does this story, this tragedy of a man who's just begun, beginning to hone his teachings, becomes fetishized and co-opted by empire. How does that happen? And I'm mostly a fiction writer. And the way that I really approached it first was through a novel, which will come out this following spring, which is a retelling of the Gospels from Mary Magdalene's perspective. But really, you know, I feel like there have been a lot of Magdalene novels that are unfortunately turn her into a white Celtic priestess or a sex priestess. Mm. And they're pretty anti-Semitic, to be honest. And I'm going to finally push back against that, which is, you know, Miriam is a Jewish name. In all of the early first stratum texts we have, Miriam was a Jewish wealthy follower of Jesus. She may have been his partner, his companion, or wife. And I wanted to reroute Miriam the Magdalene as a um, spiritual teacher, someone engaging in the Judaism of the time period, someone who had been oppressed by the Roman Empire and seen her people killed repeatedly. And what would that mean to root her back into this ministry, this combative, anti-imperial, almost anti-agricultural peasant ministry? Mm. So I wrote a book, a fiction book, and it's the, the nonfiction work, and the teaching has come much later, and I never would have expected to land there. Because I think oftentimes fiction is the best way to compost things, to retell them. Because we can't reach back and take these teachings from Galilee in the Second Temple period and pretend like they'll be necessarily nourishing to us right now. But we can use modern science. We can use our own social situations, our own invasive species and foxes and mountains outside our house to begin to ask questions inspired by these older texts. Mm.
0: There's so much in what you just shared that I'm geeking out about, so I will do my best to kind of focus it in. But <laughs> I love that you describe Jesus as this wild magician of his time, deeply rooted in his context and environment, and in the reclamation of the oral tradition as weaving what binds our reality to relationship. In our environments. So as I'm, you know, trying to focus this season on how did how did the contents become disconnected from container? How did we begin appropriating? How did empire begin appropriating this message? Is it your view that the moment that the oral tradition became one of text, did that shift us from participants of the divine story into worshipers of a sacred text? Is that one of the co-opting moments that you talk about?
1: Um. I think that in the grand theme of scripture and knowledge transmission, that holds. But not for Jesus. I think the minute Jesus is killed by empire and his followers begin to have different interpretations and then interact with empire in different ways, you know, Jesus gets co-opted within a day of his death. Mm. You interrupt his story and it's immediately, it immediately falls apart which is what's interesting about it, is he just hadn't been teaching for that long. I think people don't understand that, is that you know he had hardly matured his teachings. He had just broken with his teacher, John the Baptist, and was just beginning to refine how his message was different from his teacher's message. There just wasn't enough material yet. There wasn't enough of a root system to maintain a coherent message. There were too many different followers with their own ideas about what was going to happen. And then, of course... There's so much violence. Mm -hmm. I oftentimes say that one of the big breaks between John the Baptist and Jesus is that John the Baptist is predicting an eschatological apocalypse, a kind of a metaphysical apocalypse, and Jesus is predicting a historical apocalypse. And he's correct because by 70 CE, the Romans have come in, they've wiped out, I think like 90% of the Jewish population. They've burned the temple. There's been the mass suicide at Masada. And then you had these massive massacres of the Jews in Alexandria, where a lot of them had gone to escape the Roman Empire. Mm. And so you have an apocalypse, you know, you have all of the people that these people would have known killed and dead. So in this moment in time, when everybody you know is being killed it's hard to see how that story can get through the bottleneck intact and when it comes out the other side of the bottleneck of this genocide the romans pick it up rather than the jews
0: talk to us then about where and what happened to the potentiality of that rooted story did it survive i mean is there a version of this story that we can rediscover and particularly around your work with Mary Magdalene, which is obviously an incredibly countercultural perspective that this woman is at the center of the Gospels, yet she gets written out. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about where did that mycelial nourishment go underground and how can we rediscover it then?
1: Mm. Yeah. So at the time of the Nicene Council, there were hundreds of Christian gospels and texts, and they decided that only the most rigid ones that most conformed to what the Roman Empire wanted to disseminate as Christianity would be included. So what people don't understand is like the gospels are what the Romans, you know, cherry picked from a biodiversity of competing gospels and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is in the past 50 years, We have found a lot of these texts and a lot of them that have been ignored have been translated and have been lifted up by scholars. But we're suddenly seeing, you know, oftentimes they're called Gnostic texts. But the new idea of Gnosticism is very problematic. It's like I oftentimes say that Gnosticism is just like, what if right now there was a massive inquisition against alternative ways of knowing and you went to your local New Age bookstore and you took every single book and you put it in a bag and then you buried it and then we unburied these thousands of years later and said that everything in those texts was agreeing with each other and was from the same religion. (laughs) Like, that's, you know, Gnosticism was, was basically anything other than what Orthodox Roman Christianity became. Mm. And so it really represents many different perspectives. And so I, I oftentimes think it's funny when people are trying to create, like, you know, a universal Gnostic perspective rather than just saying there were a lot of different Christian communities doing many different things. Mm. What we do know for sure is that in early Christian communities, women, were giving the sacraments, that they were priests, that they were preaching, and that they held incredible places of power, but that this was threatening when the Roman Empire, which was very sexist, began to take over. So they needed to begin to narrow down on a more patriarchal, hierarchical, male-centric version of the gospels. So I love Gnostic texts, but I also think each one is its own perspective its own prism. Like, none of them are cohesive when you look at them all together.
0: Well, that's the curious thing about that organizing principle of the Roman Empire, right? Which in essence is just transplanted its pyramid of power over into, or I should say, co-opted Christianity into its pyramid of power over, as opposed to what feels like the wild mycelial perspective of the Gospels that you're bringing, including the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which is that it's ecologically unfolding in a power with dynamic. It's not containable. We can't put a clean label on it. We can't give it a clean category. And I want to ask you about this because in the digging into this alternative non-Empire perspective— It seems to me that one of the things that determines that empire of power over are clean dualities, Mm, you know, strong binaries in, out, right, wrong, good, bad, even the binaries of gender, right? So it's like everything kind of functions in this. You're either with us or you're against us. How does reclaiming this alternative path that has a more rooted and wild and less containable, less definable nature allow us to move from the structures of a power over paradigm into what might be described as a more power with perspective.
1: It's beautiful. So what I think we really need to do is we need to look at like the medium as message, hmm. which is we need to look at the way Jesus taught rather than his teachings, because the teachings are very specific to their time period but the way he was teaching i think is something that can be composted and used. So one of the most radical paradigm shifting things about Jesus was all of the jewish rebels and prophets and magicians of the time period were saying that the eschaton is oftentimes what we reference these days as being the apocalypse like the the revealing the end of a certain time period but in greek it really just means the end it could be the end of the line it's just a kind of ubiquitous word. So if you think about the Jewish people who have been subjected to exile and to multiple different oppressive empires, when they're saying, when is the eschaton, they're saying, when is the end of this experience where we feel like we're in dissonance with our God, Mm -hmm. where we believe our God is just, but our experience feels very unjust and there's a lot of friction. When is this going to end and things are going to be made just and fair again? Mm -hmm. So to say, when is the eschaton going to come means when are things going to feel fair again? So this is really, really high stakes in Jesus's time. I mean, I oftentimes say when Jesus was four, probably, with a lot of blurriness about when that actually was, um, there was a rebel called Judas who revolted against the Roman Empire. And the 2,000 women and children and men were crucified and left up screaming for days outside of Jerusalem as a kind of like... I told you so. So we're so focused on this one crucifixion, crucifixion was ubiquitous and also like the Romans were coming into people's villages and raping people and killing people for sport all the time. I mean, violence was everywhere. So when you were saying, when is the eschaton, it's not a spiritual quandary. It's like a physical need saying like, when is this violence going to end? And so it was very dangerous to say it's going to happen now or then. Because, you know, you could be wrong. So the safest thing to do was what a lot of teachers were doing at the time, which is saying it's coming soon. Soon is a very plastic (laughs) term. So John the Baptist is saying the kingdom is coming soon. So that's pretty safe. And the interesting thing is he has a very top-down organization of his way of teaching. Like, you have to go to him to receive the baptism. He's the person teaching. He's the person preaching. So it's very easy for Herod Herod Antipas, who's colluding with the Roman Empire because he wants to be king, he's not of a Davidic lineage. So he wants to be king of the Jews, but he doesn't have that covenant of being of David's line. So he's kind of thinking that he could become a king if he allies himself with the Romans, which is understandable. I mean, collusion in a time of violent empire is understandable. It's a technique of surviving. Right. But Herod doesn't like people who are pushing back against that. And he sees John as being very dangerous. And it's easy to kill John's movement because it's hierarchical. John is at the head of it. Mm -hmm. And you literally cut off John's head and it's done. Jesus sees this. It's really interesting to think of Jesus as a man who changes his mind and has evolving beliefs. So he was obviously baptized by John and believed in baptism and was part of this experience. It's interesting to like look at the things that come up again and again because they're probably the closest thing we have to some kind of historical accuracy. So Jesus and John are combined and included with each other in the earliest stratum of text. So Jesus was probably associated with John's baptismal immersing, I would say, his immersion practices. But Jesus saw when John was killed that whatever John was saying was wrong, Mm. You know, God was not going to come in with a sword and save everyone. No savior was coming. And so Jesus did two radical things that I think can really teach us a lot right now, which is he said, you know what? Top down organization doesn't work. This is going to be decentralized. So what he did is he started teaching in a way that other people could begin to teach like him. He said, everybody go and heal and don't bring anything with you so that you're dependent on the people you heal with. So Heal people and then eat with the people you heal. Like that was his teaching. And actually, if you look at the gospels, like so the most conservative version of these stories, he never says go in my name or go in God's name. He never says you have to pray before you do it. He just says, go and heal and don't bring anything with you so that you're creating this reciprocity. So you're weaving yourself into community. So you have to create community as you go along. Mm. And so that means... John Dominic Crossan, who is one of my favorite historians of this time period, says that means that so news traveled more slowly than it does now in a digital era. So Jesus would have been killed in Jerusalem, and it probably would have taken about yeah, maybe you could anywhere from 10 to 30 days for the news of his death to spread all the way up into northern Galilee. And during that time period, people are still doing all of this stuff. So they can see that, Even though Jesus was dead, they could still do all of these things. They could still heal. They could still gather people for food and storytelling. And so there was an amazing shift from someone like John who said, I'm the only person who can give this to you. And so, you know, just like fungi are decentralized, they don't have a brain or a central node of cognition. So was Jesus's, his ministry, this decentralized map of relationships in Galilee. Um, which I love. So that's one big shift that we can learn. Like, How do we create movements where it's the connectivity and the thinking that happens between differences in belief systems, between Jews and Samaritans, between men and women? How can we situate our power in our relationships so that when one person falls away, the whole thing doesn't fall apart? So that seems really interesting. John kept saying the kingdom is going to come and it's going to be a divine intervention. Jesus says, no. It's not the kingdom is participatory and it's already here.
0: Mm.
1: And then he relates it. He says, the kingdom is participatory. It means you have to be involved in it and it's happening right now. It's not going to happen passively. It involves you engaging with the sick people, with the disabled people, with the bad people and eating food with them. That's what the kingdom is, is shared food and shared healing reciprocity and depending on each other and mutual aid networks that are opposed to these urbanized Roman cities. So it's also like creating anti-communities that are very dangerous. And he's also saying that the kingdom is impure. Like the, he always is relating it to leaven, to Samaritans, to thieves. So the kingdom is always complicating binaries and stable value systems. And I love that. For me, I oftentimes say that if we look at the way he was constructing his ministry, it asks us to do an inventory of what we really think is taboo and unclean. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm not talking about a dirty shoe, I'm like talking about things that we are afraid of, the pl- like the micro pellets of plastic in our blood, you know, coronavirus, you know, the waste plants, the pollution. And we're so scared of the waste that we've created and don't know how to digest and weave back into food webs that we are trying to constantly detox our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes say that if we're interacting with our current situation in a way that might be analogous to how Jesus was interacting with his situation is to say, how can I metabolize this? How can I see that the sacred is often hidden in the things that we think are most impure?
0: Damn.
1: (laughs) Yes. I just probably went on a long rant,
0: (laughs) But that was, that, that was, that was everything. Cause this is such a radical shift and it demonstrates for me why so many of us maybe have felt, um, Uh, dislodged or uncomfortable with the paradoxical nature of receiving some version of this teaching of Christianity that points to some of these things that you're saying, but they're ensconced within a power over paradigm, an entire structure that is saying the opposite. So, Sophie, do you think that maybe one of the reasons why and it's, you know, it's just a topic that a lot of people have brought up in countless settings, especially religious settings. You know, the concern about religion being on the decline, you know, that the spiritual but not religious is like on the on the increase. And most of us identify with at least more than one spiritual tradition or none at all. And do you see this as part of the composting of the power over paradigm in which our identities are no longer impermeable and separate from in which we are maybe discovering or hungering for a network-like interactive um, permeability with other perspectives, with other traditions, and most importantly, with a more ecologically-based approach to spirituality. And I know that in other places in your writing, you describe this as kind of like a revival of animism. So can you talk to us about that? Because I think that's a hunger that many of my listeners might relate to.
1: Yeah, I mean I think religion is always hierarchy. Like it's never spiritual. I would say I really enjoy the book The Lost Art of Scripture by Karen Armstrong that really shows that well, first of all, the, the the split between the secular and the sacred is so modern. That in the time of Jesus there was like no divide between the religious and the political. They were the same thing. There was no word to designate that split. And that religious probably wasn't even the correct word. Like There was no split between the spirit and the mundane and the practical. I think that right now people are seeing that religion is much more allied with anthropocentrism and that spirituality could be a way of weaving ourselves back into that imminence, that immediate Understanding that we are real in real bodies, in real relationships, and those relationships are what physically sustain us. Mm. And so, the animism that I'm interested in is not like appropriating some type of indigenous animism that's practiced in some place that's not where I live. It's more kind of about gradients of difference. It's about saying, like, a stone is alive, but it's alive differently than me. And that keeps me asking questions, it keeps me interactive and participating in a curious type of courtship with the place where I live. So I think animism can also be seen as a kind of panpsychism, which is just understanding that liveliness is not necessarily something that just happens in human brains. It's something that permeates the world, that we are more processes than we are you know, bounded nouns. And if we're processes, then what's in us probably flows into something else.
0: I love this quote that you say, where you say, We are more gerund than cold hard noun, more animacy than strictly animal. We ensoul the world and are ensouled in return. Our myths about individuation and linearity no longer hold all the trouble and all the love. We need to stop sticking out our two hands like it proves everything comes in oppositional dualisms.
1: <laughs> yeah. I just don't. It doesn't happen in nature that much at all.
0: I I really appreciate this shift, right? Which is to apply this ecological lens as the posture, the process with which we seek to engage, which is relational. And I'm a really big fan of Andreas Weber.
1: I. Actually, was just talking with him. He just um, gave me a lovely quote for my book. He's one of my favorite writers. Oh my yeah. god,
0: deep, deep respect for him. Um, but in his work, yeah. matter and desire and erotic ecology. Whew. He, yes. Yeah. I mean, that that is a whole spiritual experience in and of itself. But what I appreciated was this reclamation of the word erotic yeah. as meaning um, deeply relational, deeply embodied and present as relationship, as a system of relationality. In other words, we don't understand ourselves as separate beings who are, you know, in this kind of like chosen dance, but rather we are already in the flux of this relational unfolding story. And that that presencing to that reality is erotic. And I I felt kind of a shift occur in me as I read that work, or as that work read me. I don't even know how to describe what the process of reading that book is. It's so deep. But, you know, noticing how even within my own explorations, within what is considered contemplative or mystical circles of spirituality, there's still appropriating a hierarchy. There is still a power over dynamic by which some have been given this special like spiritual transmission, and then you kind of follow in their steps, and they are the wisdom teacher, and we all worship them. Or even with mystics, I've noticed how a lot of people enshrine and worship mystics who have gone before us, uprooting them from their, you know, particular time and place, and giving them this special power as though that same power isn't available to us now, to live with that level of oneness. So there's been this sense of discomfort for me around this ongoing sort of habit of creating these hierarchies of power. And Andreas Weber's work and your work as well seems to be opening up a new understanding of relationality, one that he describes that you describe as erotic. So tell us about what comprises this erotic way of life?
1: Yeah, I mean, Andreas's work felt like such a homecoming. and I was reading it, I was just like, yes, yes. Um, and I love his shorter book Enlivenment, which I'm using in my course right now, is actually a frame. Which is like, how do we promote the general aliveness while risking our own individual aliveness? Like, how do we, you know, interact with the world so that we're helping the world rather than focusing on just our own individual story? Repeat the question again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's exactly
0: it's exactly that. Which that's is so
1: Twitterpated by his work. Yeah, work. no, it's yeah.
0: totally totally fine. But that's how I feel too. Is I just I get like I can't even form a thought around it. But it's what what. How can we understand this erotic approach to life in kind of a more practical way? Like what, what does that mean to you, and how could you explain that to my listeners in a way that feels like, "Oh yeah, okay, that makes
1: sense? So I'm really interested in symbiosis and how us as multicellular beings are product of an ancient bacterial anarchic lovemaking, where two simple prokaryotic lipid bundles without nuclei, half digested each other, and became the organelles of the complex eukaryotic nucleated cells that make us today. That in fact, I'm really interested in kind of a deep queerness, a deep erotic queerness that constitutes multicellularity, that it's about we think of evolution as being constantly about forking and individuating, but actually the most biological novelty happens in these in moments where we step sideways into an, another body. And the lovemaking isn't necessarily something that's about two different beings sharing genital um, copulation and producing like offspring. It's about co-sharing of bodies. Mm. You know, a kind of lovemaking that is permanent. We can only develop placentas because of a retroviral incursion, I think, 200 million years ago, whereby in early proto-mammals, this um, retrovirus came in and taught us how to develop the protein syncytin that creates the syncytiotrophoblast layer of the placenta. So birth is a viral incursion. And so I think matter has has an inclination to get involved with other matter. That we are, you know, entropy would would seem to say that everything scatters. We are the shoreline between entropy and extraordinary erotic cohesion. So our bodies themselves are this erotic landscape where matter somehow has decided to become involved with itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I often think that You know, when I go to a certain place, I think it's because I have the inclination to go there. But there could be carbon in me that wants to visit carbon in that river that's, you know, been divided for aeons but once shared a galaxy. So I am the vehicle providing the travel that facilitates a reunion, a material reunion well below my own perceptions of what I'm doing. Like, I am a vessel for these, like, microbial and um, elemental reunions. So for me, eroticism infuses everything, mm. that everything wants to become involved, and that I love Andreas's idea that it's, it's love, that mm. it's love that's non-gendered, that's not about heteronormativity, it's love that sometimes slips into antagonism, where two beings self-cannibalize each other, but then actually create a whole other mode of life, of consciousness. So that for me feels absolutely miraculous, this eroticism that ties us all together, ties our very bodies together. You know, David Abram also, who's one of my favorite thinkers about this, often says, like, the push of gravity keeping you on this flying rock is, like, tender. It's, like, erotic. It's pressing you into the ground. It's, like, keeping you there. And I think let's make the revolution pleasurable, mm. as Tony Cade Bambara says via Adrian Marie Brown, like you know the revolution will be most effective if it's fun and sexy to do. And I oftentimes say that wed yourself to a mountain like wed yourself to a field, to a species that's going extinct so that you are erotically involved with it and you're culpable to it like a partner. Like You will protect things you love with your whole body more than you will things that feel conceptually important.
0: Mm. What strikes me about what you're saying in this description of the erotic life as the presence-filled, participatory, pleasurable gift of being alive and gifting our lives is that it delineates that very same shift of power over that we're talking about in systems of power historically into even how we relate within our own bodies. In other words, that we are shifting out of the power over mentality or, I guess, paradigm that teaches us that our mind or our thoughts are somehow separate from our body. One of the things that I often say in some of my classes is, there is no spiritual transformation apart from the body. There's nothing apart from the body. It is all bodily. And yet, because of that kind of Neoplatonic split that became so co-opted as a part of that Christian empire that you're describing, that discomfort between matter and spirit is still so much a part of our reality, whether you're religious or not. I mean, we still preference the mind as being your thoughts or your achievements or your personality as somehow happening above this vessel that you're kind of subduing and dealing with, like, oh, I have to eat, you know, well, I guess I should work out, you know. So this relational approach of eroticism that I'm hearing you describe Is this also a way of descending into bodiliness and descending into the rest of our senses? I'm a big fan of philosopher Luce Irigaray, and she says that the eye seeks to dominate. And when we function so much through what the eye sees as reality, we're losing touch with the rest of the senses that bring us into touch and sensation and bodily connectivity. So talk to us about the practice of the erotic and what are some concrete ways that we might begin to live in that kind of relational approach today?
1: Well, first, I want to say that I think it's really interesting that you have Platonism again then gets rearticulated within Christianity as being you know matter and spirit that then is in Cartesian dualism later on and material reductionist science kind of just inherits Christian theology. See <laughs> it emerged, which I think is really interesting, during the Bronze Age collapse and during moments where people are dislocated from their lands, so they have to take their myths through genocide, through climatological collapse, through social disruption, and their their pushed across the land, away from the landforms that they know how to talk to. And I think that if you think about cultural bodies, is also operating like physical bodies. If you think about cultural somatics, you know, it's Resma Menachem who says, like, you know, over time trauma becomes culture. I'm then a survivor of pretty intense abuse and disassociation is a way you survive. So taking the mind out of the body is a way of surviving massive trauma. So I sometimes think that the way that all these cultures responded to plagues and to volcanic eruptions and and droughts and famines and wars that were all happening pretty much within like 200 years was to create this split. Mm. And that's actually the time when you see the Canaanite alphabet and the Canaanite alphabet doesn't have vowels, which means it depends on breath and extra textual information. So it's not really like an alphabet, which is super interesting. It functions for a long time, needing the web of relationships that give you the context to even read it. And then, with the Bronze Age collapse and all of these disruptions, what you see is the Greeks create the Greek alphabet, which has vowels. And when you have vowels, all of a sudden you can use your alphabet to colonize other languages and other people and write them without any extra contextual information. And suddenly you don't need any breath. You don't need any outside information to be able to pretend like beings, processes, or objects on a page. And of course, it's that shift into chirographic culture, that conceptual shift into reification that allows for Socrates and Plato. Even though Plato demonizes writing, he's still using writing which is so interesting. So I do think that we see this split happen as a kind of trauma mechanism that's understandable and we can have compassion about, but that right now our imperative may be to you know, heal that, mm. to heal that divide that's existed for so long. I sometimes think that there are different directions, there are different modalities for different time periods. You know, There may have been cultures that lived under the zodiac of ascent and of that split, and that was necessary. But now it seems to be about... Fusion. So if evolution is constituted by forking and fusing, you know, sometimes it needs to fork. Right now it needs to fuse. We need to come back into our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is one of those texts that was ostracized by the church and hidden. It's complicated because it does seem to demonize matter, but it also says, sink back into the roots. So I like to have a composting of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene where Jesus keeps saying in that Gospel, you have to get back into your root system. You have to sink to the roots, sink back into the one. And I, I like to look at that and say, like it's saying, you need to sink back into your body and start thinking with your entire somatic um, web. And even beyond that, you know, if we think of how a spider actually thinks with its whole web, and if you damage a part of its web, it acts like it's actually had a traumatic brain injury. Um, and neuroscientists are beginning to find, basically, there's an extended cognition through that whole web. We also think through our whole web, through every fungal, viral, microbial, insect, geological being within a like a five mile radius. That's our web. Mm. And what if we could think with that whole and feel with that whole extended body? Like pull a string and feel the vibration coming back from an oak a mile away. Mm. And so I think it's about coming back into our bodies, but not in some kind of atomized new age wellness way Mm -hmm. where it's like self-care and like lathering in lotion. It's more (laughs) about finding a place in the landscape that needs the press of your foot like an acupuncture me- needle. Mm. Like every foot activates 300 miles of mycelial fungi. You're sending messages you know, into the land. We're so focused you know, with psychedelic culture on extracting medicine and taking the medicine to make ourselves better so that we can be more productive within society. But what would it mean to be the medicine to your landscape to say there is a place that needs my foot. There's a place that needs my body. I'll drop into my body, but then I wanna be the place where other beings drop back into their bodies.
0: Mm. That is so profound. And I'm reminded of, um, I'm I'm probably going to butcher this, but that passage in the Gospel of Thomas where it's like, when you can make the inner like the outer, the two become one. And it's that very relational approach to not some abstract esoteric, you know, like spiritual oneness. Like I just, one of the things that I found like in a lot of the mystical circles is like just really just feeling very non-dual and very just one with reality and the world. And really all that that meant is that people were wearing hemp and they're just like wearing like oils and they're just speaking with a breathy voice. And it has no particular impact on exactly what you're saying, which is how do we become web-alike in our relational participatory lives? One of the things that I struggle with, Sophie, is—and I'm sure you encounter this a lot—as I've been on this path of transition of composting what was formerly known as Christianity or what what was the Christian map that I grew up with, which obviously was entirely empire-oriented, you know, the shift has occurred to where— I don't even know what to call myself or what to like (laughs) describe to people. My notions of God have gone from, you know, a singular God to for many years I described as the community formerly known as God, which I thought was a, was a healthy way for me to interact with the Godding as opposed to like some separate notion of God to where oftentimes there's no terms at all for the divine because reality itself seems so divinely imbued. And so I want to ask you this question about religion and about Christianity and unknowing. It's almost as if it's this container that we go through particular formative times of our lives. But I can't help but wonder if maybe the point of that whole container is to spit us out the other side, (laughs) for us to come through it as opposed to be attached to it. And I know that the power over paradigm loves to use identities and labels to make sense of reality. So in our resistance to that, could there be an understanding of spiritualities as composting us and us not needing to belong to them with an identity, but allowing its work to take shape and create a mess within which new life can form?
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, feminist quantum physicist Karen Barad's idea of interactivity, space-time mattering. How there's no such thing as a singular being. We're all interfacing with each other, and we become what we are through interaction. Um, you know, so like the shore is created by the interaction of the sand and the water. That we are all these shorelines, these fraying patterns. Between multiple different interactions, and so I think that you know I was asked to be on a panel with Bio recently that we did, where and I think we were both very um, <laughs> we disrupted what they the, what the program was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about researching the sacred, and both me and Bio were like, "What? We'll have none of that." <laughs> and I, I we kind of landed on like, "What is it? We can't research the sacred. What does it mean to let the sacred research you? You know, what does it mean to just let yourself be?" played like an instrument by all of the different bumptious animacies that want to use you as a mouthpiece. Mm. I oftentimes call myself a Neo-Troubadour animist. Yes. The troubadours were this great syncretic fusion of like Islamic storytelling and love cults, and then you have Arthurian myths, you have Christianity, you have folkloric pagan animism in Europe, but it was a way of wandering honoring the ladies of specific places so like tutelary deities rather than like homogenizing universal Mm -hmm. ladies you know ladies that were like you know lady of a stream so you would write your poem to a certain lady Mm -hmm. and so I think of myself as a neo-troubadour animist someone who is always writing love stories everything is always infused with an eroticism Mm -hmm. and with a sense that cohesion is what we want to create but I'm an animist because you know that kind of love stories necessarily going to involve human beings. So that's my title. But I also think that as someone who has very serious illness, that can create unexpected breakdowns, shifts in my entire plot line that I've devised for myself. I realized that the most important thing is to be available to let go of your story and your title and your to let things change. You know, Octavia Butler says in the Parable of the Sower, God has changed. And that feels most accurate, which is just in order to survive chaos, you have to be of afoot, you have to be able to improvise. And right now we're seeing so many different escalating crises, be they climatological or political or social or economic, that it's not about trying to predict exactly what's going to happen because you could predict wrong and then be... in a totally disadvantaged position. It's rather to create the musculature for change, mm. to create a kind of athleticism and dancing fluidity so that when something unexpected happens, you can flow with it.
0: I couldn't think of a better endorsement for unknowing than what you just said. But to be servants of change, or I should say lovers instead of servants, lovers of change, to be in relational reciprocity, with what is always emerging and shifting in us feels like such a powerful invitation. And, you know, as we close here, Sophie, I... I'm also a fan of the poetry that you write because it feels like another expression of of everything that you're teaching. And I can't wait to read your novel as well on Magdalene since, as you know, I'm a big Magdalene fan too. So I wondered if you would be willing to close with a poem. I had one in mind, but as I'm li- listening to you speak, I, I kind of feel like I'd rather just let you choose something in the moment that feels right to you.
1: Hmm. Well, I just wrote a poem. I could share a poem I just wrote. It's a little intense. I'd love that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's see. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, here we are. It's kind of about that interactivity and about the shoreline. It was actually inspired by being at the beach recently where my mother's family is from We went up to the Cape to visit the ancestral homelands. So this is called the Lac Shore gnawed by the uneven saw of storm disrupted waves seals caw and gulls bark through spray that throws salt across each sound translates the vowels of one species love song into the hard stop of another's mortal rattle a bottle at my feet stoppered green as an organ that no longer participates in any body uncorked a note like a sheet of dew dissolves as i read here is an absence study its shape trust the precision of this lack it cannot be lost or held it is a loss i give you that longs to be filled with sea sand with me it will hurt but no this lack this empty bottle is to you future beloved my summons
0: wow what a profound articulation of the longing that we all share And this longing as that erotic drive for connectivity and relationality. And Sophie, thank you so much for your offering of your enlivenment in this world, in all of its relational web-like wholeness. And the... Ends of which we have no idea how long and how far these reverberations of you will will travel, but I want to say that from this end of the spider web, your work has meant a lot and has impacted me greatly. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you, and we're both part of the same web now, be it yeah. mycelial or arachnid, sending vibrations. And I'm very honored to be woven into this ecosystem. Thank you for all of your incredibly thoughtful, um, spiritually rooted questions. Thank
0: you, Sophie. So, we're learning how to compost our maps from being documents that delineate our identities as uprooted, transplanted ideas of separateness, and choosing unknowing instead, as a return into a remembered, rooted, relational wholeness. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. There is so much to metabolize from this conversation, but I really had an aha moment when Sophie described the differences between John the Baptist's movement as being centralized and hierarchical versus the Jesus movement, which was um, non-centralized and non-hierarchically, almost spore-like in its organization. Sophie said, how do we create movements where we can situate our power in our relationships. And I I really think that this is powerful. (laughs) The recognition that the kingdom is participatory, it's here, or that at least that was the message. I do feel that that's something that we can digest and metabolize even as we face such political and ecological tragedies and catastrophes. I'm reminded of the work of Rebecca Solnit in her book, Hope in the Dark where she writes that those who are optimists or pessimists are operating from a certitude and that true revolution happens when you are willing to be uncertain about the future because there is where hope lies. I think these times require us to be enamored in our relationships and our relationality so that we can be enlivened for the work ahead empowered and activated to have an imagination of moreness which in my view is catalyzed by love love is what produces that kind of power and um, resiliency and creativity when there seems to be no way forward second piece of true north wisdom we are more processes than we are nouns i love this um reframe of identity as understanding ourselves as um, vehicles. <laughs> I loved when Sophie talked about the opportunity of recognizing that perhaps a craving or a longing that exists within us is actually about carbon wanting to meet up with carbon that had been separated, you know, millennia ago. <laughs> I thought that was the most poetic and erotically beautiful description of the communal Orientation of a larger sense of selfhood. This co sharing of bodies. I really, really appreciated when Sophie said, What if there is a place in a forest that requires my foot, the placement of my foot as acupuncture? And I think what I appreciate about that is that it's such a powerful visual and tangible invitation to reorient our approach to ecology, to really see that meeting point, that that touching and permeability and commingling as the place within which love and possibility can emerge. Because Entering into an encounter with the more-than-human world in that way is going to change you. (laughs) It is going to change us. We will be different kind of people when we are people who are in relationship with the more-than-human in that way. Final piece of True North Wisdom. I really appreciated how Sophie brought up Octavia Butler saying God is change. So, in so many ways, Sophie invited us to be disrupted, to be people who can be (laughs) disruptable, to be open to change and disruption, to unknowing, to move in those fluid spaces, in the cracks, in the ruptures. And that is creativity. And I think that really expresses why I have had such a core focus on creativity on the Unknowing podcast, why I'm constantly reminding everybody who's listening that you're makers, that we are artists, that we are making something with each choice that we make in our lives and that we have an opportunity to be wild in that shared creative flux. As Sophie said, you know, to think about our enlivenment not as a, a, an individual trajectory of like, what do I need to do for my enlivenment, but rather to think about enlivenment for the whole, as the whole. What can we give for the enlivenment of this earth? That's it on today's episode. Next week on Unknowing Podcast, we get to talk about one of my favorite mystics, French paleontologist and priest, Thierry de Chardin, with my dear friend and mentor, Ilya Delio, exploring how his work may help us compost Christianity into an orientation toward matter as mattering very much. That just never gets old. (laughs) You know what else matters is your support. Unknowing Podcast is brought to you entirely by the generosity of this co-creative community, this spore-like organization that we are trying to foster together. To keep the Unknowing Podcast going, if you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation, or if you'd like to become a patron, you can check the show notes to find out more information. Finally, as you know, I always like to close each episode with a little bit of poetry, These lines are from Sweet Darkness by David White. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.